liability and contributory negligence. This is Wheel Life. Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello, I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcroft. In this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the issues around finding fault in road traffic accidents involving vulnerable road users. So when we're talking about finding fault, here we're really talking about uh, the civil law uh, and liability and negligence claims. So uh, road traffic accident, personal injury claim, uh, perhaps your bread and butter, Caroline. Yep. Uh, it's my day in day out. <laughs> okay, I was expecting a bit more of an answer than that, but yep, <laughs> that'll do. <laughs> but <laughs> um, what we thought we might do in this um episode is actually what's quite interesting is uh, by and large as you get into the cases it's often just uh, not just it's often a matter of analyzing the facts and what can be very hard when you're sitting at your desk either contemplating bringing a claim or trying to work out whether and to what extent to defend it is it really is going to be at the end of the day a matter of judgment um, around some um fairly stringent framework so we thought we'd start with the framework and then really have a look at some of the cases uh to perhaps try and get a flavor for how that judgment might play out so obviously the first thing we're talking about road traffic accidents uh with personal injury claims attached we're not looking at uh damage only claims we're not looking at uh fixed fees or 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 low value claims we're looking at those that have got a sufficiently high value injury uh that they will fall into um the usual um fast track or multi-track common law Um, evaluation of evidence uh, with witnesses experts perhaps accident reconstruction in the right kind of case Um, it's as we say civil liability so the general principles of a duty of care which all road users owe to one another an assessment of that standard of care and the evaluation of that care that standard of care and that duty of care in the civil standard which is the balance of probabilities Just to add in here that obviously today we're talking about vulnerable road users as well and the highway code classifies vulnerable road users. You're looking at um, cyclists, pedestrians, motorbike riders, but you're also looking at um, horse riders. Oh, that's um, important to remember. And of course, most of the time there will be a larger vehicle involved uh, because that tends to be the nature of the beast. But we're trying to assess it from the point of view of those vulnerable users. So, I mean, the statistics tell us uh, that there are uh, really, you know, quite a lot of vulnerable road users out there with a casualty rate uh, that is uh, the highest for motorbikes, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, in terms of passenger miles uh, uh, at about a casualty rate per billion passenger miles um, of 5,051 for motorbikes, 1,640 for pedestrians, uh, whereas cars are only 195 and lorries are way down at 45. So the first thing we can see from that is, as in so much of life, size matters. Um, and <laughs> it's often the case that the larger you are, uh, you can biff much more uh, and suffer much less harm. Um, and, you know, I say that without... Uh, meaning to be flippant to all of those who have suffered injury on the road um, and the catastrophe that can rebound from that. Um, But that does lead to one of the evaluating 
um, elements when you're looking at um, blame and um, apportionment of blame in particular um, is causative potency uh, and relative blameworthiness um, and essentially the larger the vehicle um, and indeed the more mechanised the vehicle and the more able it is to respond to the road uh, then the more um, liable you're going to be for an accident the higher the culpability will be so uh, lorry on pedestrian um, one can evaluate it uh, as a start of a 10 that uh, nine times out of 10 the lorry is going to bear the brunt of the blame there has been consideration hasn't the caroline about whether actually that should be turned into a legal principle whether that should become a force of of, of size yep that's right um at the back end of last year well actually it ran from july through to october of last year the um Department of Transport, um, there was a consultation with regard to changes to the highway code. And one of the proposed changes was in relation to a hierarchy of road users, um, which ensures that those road users who can do the greatest harm have the greatest responsibility to reduce the danger or threat they may pose. So in terms of that, you would have obviously lorry at the bottom, maybe a a van on top of that, then a car, then a motorbike, then a cyclist, and then at the top you would have the pedestrian. Um, one of the uh, pieces I've seen about it were pre- pretty much putting it forward as greater power should bring greater responsibility, as in exactly what you were just saying, larger vehicle, um, you're going to look at them first. In relation to that, obviously there's um, a view that that's trying to push the uh, English towards a strict liability in terms of um, presumed liability. So if an accident happened um, and it was a lorry versus a pedestrian, it would be straight away presumed that the lorry was to blame rather than the um, pedestrian. However, um, I think our view when we were putting our response in here was that um, we don't disagree with a hierarchy of road users. However, um, our view is that, and um, you and I have discussed this previously, that every road user bears some responsibility and we need to look at um, the accident circumstances in the whole. But uh, the hierarchy of road users, I think, if you look at it, it just makes sense that you've got a pedestrian at one end of the scale and a lorry at the other end. So sort of to sum that up, we don't have a formal hierarchy of road users because Uh it's important to look at what people are doing. But by and large, you perhaps start from, um, if you're driving a car along the road, uh, you're deemed to be more likely than not to be responsible if a child crosses into the road and you knock them down. Yeah. Um, And of course, within that... um, I was just going to say within that bracket of, say, pedestrian responsibility, the law is also subtle enough to bear in mind the capacity of that pedestrian or that road user. So children are expected to be less careful or are anticipated that they will be less careful uh, than adults. Um, and adults are held to a higher standard uh, than children as pedestrians. Yeah, and when you actually look at the Highway Code as well, when it gives the definitions of vulnerable road users, it specifically flags up that you should be looking out for children, elderly and disabled people in a dip as having um, being more vulnerable than just a, a normal adult walking down the street. Yeah, and we can see also that um, the responsibility for cyclists has, has risen, um, as has the um, in line really with the rise of cycling because um you know unfortunately tragically in 10 years from 2009 to 2019 the number of uh, pedal cyclists killed or seriously injured on roads increased by eight percent 
Uh, but then when you set that against uh, bike use in the 90s, rising by over 170% in London alone, uh, then perhaps that increase isn't quite as uh, large as it may be. Uh, but what, what we do have is um, a fairly stubborn, actually, um, a fairly stubborn uh, level of child and pedestrian fatalities. Um, and, you know, great strides have been made in how roads are laid out um, and how traffic calming measures in uh, residential areas but there's a sort of low there's a sort of threshold below which the casualty number doesn't seem to uh, fall so one of the things that um, uh, has has happened um, is in terms of the way that road infrastructure is laid out and there's been quite a a lot of thought and I think we'll go into it more fully in another episode uh, of having raised um, raised pedestrian crossings that inevitably mean road traffic has to slow down to go over it um, also uh, the removal of some of the pedestrian barriers so um, at corners and um, at road crossings in cities there used to be uh, metal barriers to prevent vehicles traveling up onto the pavement and harming pedestrians but unfortunately um, with the rise of cycling it's been found that that often causes a very dangerous pinch point particularly at the left turning vehicle when you have uh, cycles or vulnerable road users scooters bikes whatever they may be um, and they don't have any way to escape from the road because they're caught against the bars and so in fact in the last sort of five or ten years there's been a move away from those sort of solid barriers um, to something that's more uh, that, that provides escape routes should they be required so what we could do is have a look at some of the cases uh, that have happened in recent times and, and just have a little look at the facts of them uh, and what, what, we might, uh, uh, what we might glean from those. So uh, the 2020 case of Mitrasinovich and Evelyn Stroud, um, that happened with uh, a motorcyclist riding, who's uh, a member of a motorcycle club um, and he was using uh, a club-owned motorbike. Um, and the accident happened on a single carriageway A road. Uh, the opposing lanes had solid white lines. And as everybody knows, that means you can't cross that white line. Um, so you have to stay in your own lane on your own side of the road. So it wasn't um, a minor road where, you you know, sometimes you can drift across the road without knowing what you're doing. Um, and the, 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 the claimant motorcyclist approached a sh pretty sharp left-hand bend um, thought he was travelling at around 40 miles an hour. Um, and so consequently, because of the motorbike and the way that you sort of lean with your motorbike, um, he moved over within his lane to the far right-hand side in order to uh, be able to lean and turn, but also to make sure that uh, he was as visible as possible, um, as he said, to see or be seen. Uh, but unfortunately, the consequence of that was he was in the middle of the road when he suddenly saw the defendant driving towards him in the opposite direction. Um, and at that point, um, his 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 um, account was that the defendant was on or over the central solid line. Um, and now I think we all can we all know that 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 uh, measurement is um, that that to measure something to a nicety can be difficult, both in the car itself and um, 
uh, as you're as you're travelling towards uh, something that you think is soon going to be an impending accident. Um, anyway, so he tried uh, on his motorbike to to apply the brakes and then release them so that he could uh, turn without skidding uh, and and get off to the left uh, left side of uh, the road. But unfortunately, uh, inevitably, there was a collision, um, and um, the evidence was as to how that collision occurred, where they were on the road. Um, uh, uh, and and obviously whose fault it was. Um, the claimant said that the motorbike lifted um, and that actually that happened sort of of its own volition as a consequence of his trying to manage the bike, uh, a brake left and right, uh, uh, and the consequence of the sort of hard braking and then release meant that the motorbike lifted itself. Uh, but um, uh, uh, that obviously was disputed by the defendant and there were no other witnesses. It was a relatively quiet road uh, and the two of them... Um, with the only witnesses. And they both instructed collision investigation experts. Uh, and I think that uh, at another episode, we might go a bit more into uh, the role of uh, collision experts uh, and, and where their evidence may or may not help. Um, but in this case, there was a disagreement between the two experts about break time, response time, and extrapolating from that about various speeds, approach paths, lines of sight and so on and so forth i mean the defendant basically uh, said there just wasn't time to do anything the defendant car came round the corner uh, and uh, there was nothing that could have been done now uh, the judge um, held that the accident uh, cause wasn't a dispute uh, both parties uh, accepted that the claimant was riding his motorbike around the left-hand bend and was on the correct side of the road uh, but that the process of braking caused this motorbike to lift and then sort of straighten and therefore head straight into the vehicle rather than following the line of the road and, and, and keeping into that sort of curve um, so the determinant in terms of fault was why did that happen why did the bike carry on going straight why did it sort of lift up um, and the factual evidence was really finely balanced. Um, you know, time had passed. Uh, they're both, uh, and it's one of the key difficulties of looking back on accidents, reliving in their minds um, uh, something that happened, you know, in a matter of moments uh, when, frankly, you know, the adrenaline is pumping and then trying to sort of recreate it, um, you know, a, a, as best you can. Um, but um, I think that the, 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 the judge held that essentially, although all the evidence was that he was a perfectly competent motorcyclist, this was far from a racing kind of accident. You know, mistakes happen. It was an unfamiliar bike. Um, and of course, it was that sort of split second moment. Um, so it was possible that the defendant's wheel was just right on the centre line, hadn't cut the corner, hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, the claimant, non, you know, nonetheless, braked hard, uh, came, you know, across the road um, and and into the um, uh, into the car. Uh, in cross-examination, there was a concession that there would have been time perhaps to brake and steer, uh, but a very short amount of time. Um, and so ultimately... Um, having heard all the evidence, having weighed it all up on a knife edge, the defendant's evidence was preferred. Um, she'd given a witness statement very quickly after the accident and um, she was a cautious driver um, and there was no evidence that um, uh, she was over the white line. So expert evidence was broadly helpful in providing a sort of scientific context, but essentially I, I think this is a case that really turns on evaluating uh, who said what, and 
there really wasn't a good scientific explanation for the fact that the motorbike sort of lifted and went straight, but it nevertheless did. And so when looking at that, you have to make some findings of fact, um, and there was no fault on the part of the defendant. Uh, and so the claim was dismissed. And, you know, that's quite an interesting um, example of, of, you know, you come across the defendant in the middle of the road, but for the claimant, they've, they've got to prove, they've got to prove that there was something wrong on the part of the defendant's driving or placement on the road or actions before you get into uh, the question of liability. Because, you know, while we talked before about the duty of care and the standard of duty of care and balance of probabilities, it is balance. And so the claimant always has the onus on them to prove to 51%. Yeah, I think that's an interesting outcome on that one, because listening through as you were going through it, I was thinking, I wonder if they'll end up with a 50-50 on that one. Um, On the basis, you've got no witnesses. um, And um, as you said, expert evidence, I I think, did you say it wasn't agreed? So, yeah. No, no, it wasn't agreed. I mean, they both gave evidence. um, And while it was sort of helpful about, you know, distance and speed, it actually didn't help with the key issue, which is why on earth did the bike, the motorbike, go straight, lift up in the air and hit the car. Why didn't it go around the corner? And they Mm. couldn't help with that. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting, so I was just going to say, I I think what's also interesting about that is to sum up the feeling, as you say, you know, you kind of look at it and you have a bit of a sort of sense of 50-50. And I think that, uh, you know, most most defendants would have uh, thought that there was, you know, a big risk on that case and that the chances of getting out scot-free uh, were were small and I think it's important for vulnerable road users or any claimant to remember uh, that uh, they do have to get over the hurdle of 51% if it's finely balanced you don't get a 50-50 outcome you don't get to consider contributory negligence until you can prove liability on the part of the defendant so it's only once you can show um, that there's fault on their part you can then seek or the defendant can then seek to reduce it but if it really is 50-50 then the claimant technically will lose. Yeah, no, I think that is the interesting point to prove, as in if you've got a driver who is suddenly presented with a cyclist, motorcyclist, pedestrian, um, and has done nothing wrong for anything that they've done, um, the court, the court, as you said, does have to find if there's something from, from that defendant. However, I think a motorcyclist, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I know they're a vulnerable road user, but I think the court probably look at them a lot more akin to a car, really, versus a pedestrian. If you had um, a pedestrian, obviously you can't do the same circumstances, pedestrian coming around the corner and, and a car, um, and whether or not the car did, did, did something wrong, I think the court would look at it the well, my experience, um, and I'm, I'm not sure what yours is, is if you're involved, a pedestrian, it is very, it look, it's looked at very differently. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think it's quite interesting the extent to which motorcycles are vulnerable road users. Um, on the one hand, the highest incidence of harm and serious injury is suffered by motorbikes and you know they are very vulnerable you come off your bike there's nothing holding you on uh, and uh, it's the very nature of the size of the engine and the speed you're going the injuries are often catastrophic Um, but I agree with you in terms of conduct on the road um, the the courts and, uh, 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 and the case law is far more Uh, akin to a motorcycle and a car they are required to kind of conduct themselves in the same way um, and and to hold to that standard whereas bikes scooters and pedestrians are a slightly different order of things I I quite agree with that yeah I mean perhaps an example of that actually is um, 
the, the case of O'Driscoll, the O'Driscoll and Bundred uh, 2019 case um, that was heard in Manchester, um, <laughs> where the pedestrian was walking it in the dark uh, on a residential street. <clears throat> there was normal street lighting on the street, um, but they were <clears throat> involved in an accident uh, because the driver of the vehicle hit the pedestrian uh, because they hadn't seen them. Uh, the pedestrian crossed a side road at a suburban junction and it was dark and he was wearing dark clothing. Um, and as he crossed, the car passed him from behind on the main road. And the driver in behind that on the main road turned into the side road, cut onto the wrong side of the road to cut the corner. Well, I mean, we know that happened um, and struck the pedestrian and obviously just hadn't seen him. Uh, the pedestrian suffered you know, very, very unpleasant head injury. Um, and liability was admitted, not surprisingly, but alleged contributory negligence. And, and the court held no. The fact that they were not wearing dark clothing and therefore were not easy to see. There was no requirement to do that. Um, there was no responsibility to do that. The lighting was as you'd expect in a suburban street. Um, and, and in fact, the pedestrian, it was found as a matter of fact, would have been lit up by the headlights of the car before. But there's no requirement to make yourself visible. How do you think that um, the um, circumstance in that case may have differed if it had been out on a country lane versus, as you said, it was a, the lighting was typical for a um, residential suburban road. Um, I live out where there's no real street lighting um, and the dog walkers, I quite like the fact all the dog walkers, all the dogs have lovely lit up collars. Um, <laughs> so you can see a dog, you can see the dog before you can anyway see the pedestrian. But there are a few joggers out near me who don't wear anything reflective whatsoever and you're, you're on top of them before you know it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. It's always struck me as odd that uh, we don't set more store by um, having illuminative or reflective items. So in Sweden, um, it's a matter of, of, of requirement. All children's outerwear clothing has to have reflective strips built into it. So um, that you can't buy children's outerwear um, without it having reflective strips. And um, I don't know if you remember, but over the last few years, there have been various campaigns, particularly around Halloween, to get children wearing something reflective uh, when they go out trick-or-treating, for exactly that reason, because it is exceptionally difficult to uh, see them, to see and be seen. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, there is no obligation. There's no obligation to wear something. I mean, I think, you know, I think that um, it is becoming more known. I find it really notable that lots and lots of people have fluorescent collars on their dogs, but they don't have fluorescent armbands on their kids. Um, but um, I think that it's not a requirement, although it is, it is more... People are more aware and there's a lot more reflective garb around. But um, no, I mean, that in and of itself would not, um, not necessarily cause liability. But perhaps if you were... Um, you know, I think that, that if you were sort of wandering around the road and you were um, um, you're wearing dark clothing, I, I think you, what you may find is is whether or not you can prove liability on the part of the defendant. Yeah. Well, it's that fa it's that word that I can never say quite correctly, conspicuity. Oh, I, I think I got it right first time that ah, time. Ah, <laughs> yeah, go, Caroline. Uh, <laughs> and that means what? <laughs> well, you may have to correct me on this, but in terms of what you can actually, what the eye can visibly see um, yeah. when you've got dark clothing against a dark background, when do yeah. you actually differentiate between the two um, and could you would you have actually been able to separate the two 
Well, you have to have uh, some perspicacity to uh, deal with that question. Ha-ha! <laughs> I did that. No, but I mean, uh, it's true. I mean, and I think that uh, most people would be very chastened by the statistics. I mean, just wearing a pale top renders you so, you know, exponentially more visible. Uh, but but it's all the rods and cones in your eyes and the ability to, to discern light and dark. Yeah. Um, and what reflects back, yeah. Well, that's one of the things in the um, highway code consultation as well in terms of... Um, the the cyclists and what they should wear and it isn't a requirement to wear something reflective as a cyclist it's recommended that you should wear something um, reflective rather than you must um, and if it's a should it's advisory if it's a must it means that you have to it's obligatory it's mandatory but um, and I think the one of the reasonings behind that is because they don't want to um, for people who can't afford reflective gear, make it um, that they have to wear it, they have to go out and buy it if they can't afford it. Um, but as you said, um, light clothing versus wearing dark clothing. And I think our proposal in terms of wording was asking to wear light clothing rather than dark clothing because it makes a, a huge amount of difference. But it's right, isn't it, that you have to have a reflector on your bike? Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> unless you've come off the bike, there should be something. If it's not on your clothing, it'll be on the bike itself yeah. that will catch and reflect back the light of the vehicle. Yeah. But um, but I think these things change. I mean, you know, when I grew up, um, oh, a couple of years ago, <laughs> no no, but when I was at school, uh, you know, we used to wander around and, and there was no reflective whatever. Now, you know, even in the middle of June, you see the primary school kids coming out to walk wherever they're going and they're all covered in high-vis, you know, tabards. Um, uh, um, you know, to, to rightly so, to make them more visible, um, and um, so I, th I think you know that that sort of expectation of um, uh, having more visibility is 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 slowly sort of uh, permeating into the consciousness. And and what would be interesting is whether there's a tipping point at which it becomes a sort of social norm, and therefore it starts to become less acceptable uh, to be. Um, Certainly, I mean, I think, you know, runners and cyclists will go first, so to speak, um, uh, in terms of it being unacceptable to be out without reflective wear. Um, but coming back to um, the case that you that you cited in terms of not having to wear reflective gear, um, that driver, um, if the pedestrian was there to be seen in the headlights of the car in front of him, why didn't he see the pedestrian? Um, and you're meant to drive within the limit of your headlights. If you can't see, you shouldn't the outside of your headlights you you need to be driving um cautious that you may have to stop at any point well i think that's right and i think the fact that you know basically the, the, the car had sort of nipped across and cut the corner um and so um um you know that that it was the bad driving on the part of the defendant that caused the um accident and also in that case they determined that there wasn't any evidence that the driver turning into the side road uh, had indicated um, and so there was nothing to warn the pedestrian that there was um, somebody was going to be turning um, and so you know to, it, it was suggested that well it would have been a counter perfection to expect the pedestrian to be wearing light clothing they were just walking along a normal suburban road uh, crossing the road and um, you know actually if the driver had been looking they would have been able to see them so um yeah, maybe not the best example, but anyway, gave rise to a nice bit of chat. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think what's interesting is um, the takeaway point would be that cyclists <clears throat> are as required as any road user to behave sensibly. That means looking out um, and uh, being aware and being, you know, properly positioned on the road 
driving or cycling within the ambit of what they can do and see um and 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 you know not not um not being a furious and wanton cyclist as we discussed in an earlier episode um so uh for example um uh, the case of Clenshaw and Tanner is quite an old case now, 2002. Um, but in that case, um, the lorry was trying to get into a petrol station and did that classic thing of pulling across um, a lane into the petrol station because it was um, they were crossing a line of stationary traffic. And so a gap came up in the car. Um, the cars that were stationary, somebody waited to give him space to turn to the petrol station. It happens all the time. Um, and the takeaway point from that as a driver is that does not obviate you from the requirement to make sure that your way is clear. Just because somebody has left you a space, even if they flash their headlights and encourage you uh, to drive through all they are doing by that is saying they will not move and hit you they are not saying your way is clear so as you, as you make the turn as you take the passage you have to look where you're going and unfortunately the lorry didn't and drove straight into mr clenshaw who was cycling up the cycle lane and of course the cycle lane was clear he was entitled to be cycling and so he didn't see the lorry however the slight twist on this one is he was also driving um cycling sorry at vast speed with his head down and wasn't looking and so although the lorry was culpable for pulling across his path actually the claimant cyclist was found to be 50 percent to blame uh because he was doing that um you know arms in the middle of your cycle head down um doing a bit of a um you know tour de france stage finish uh, but didn't look where he was going and so plowed straight into the lorry um, so that's a kind of indicator of how, well, it literally was six of one and half a dozen of the other. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, worse than that, actually, was the case of Howells and Trevigan Oil um, in 97. And the claimant was on a racing bike uh, with his head down. Uh, it was bad weather and he was cycling at over 25 miles an hour, uh, which certainly in most of London now would be breaking the speed limit. Um, so w what that was, was, was a lorry was um, carrying out um, works in a house on the side. So it was, um, it was a construction lorry, but it was stationary delivering, you know, sand and stuff to, to lay, lay um, concrete. Um, but there were so many of the lorries in that driveway that it didn't fit. So it stuck out uh, from the gateway across the uh, public highway. So, of course, that wasn't great, um, but it was a long straight road and it was, um, you know, really visible. It only struck out about two to three foot, um, but it was an obvious danger. And in that case, the judge basically uh, said that the, 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 the cyclist's... Uh, proceeding uh, was pretty much akin to, to recklessness he said it was you know akin to cycling with his eyes shut he was head down going like the clappers in bad weather didn't look where he was going at all um and there'd been 45 meters <laughs> of visibility of the lorry before he hit it i mean i shouldn't laugh because you know as is often the way with these things he paid a very heavy price for that um that um, lack of um lack of observation because he cycled into the lorry and of course came off much the worse. Um, but in that instance, the judge held that the cyclist was wholly to blame. Yeah, I think the examples we've got here um, are all ones where obviously it's gone to splits, it's gone to trial, which is why in the main um, you go when there's been a disagreement, um, either one party or the other is not, is not accepting 100% to blame or the split that you're looking for. So what we haven't got here are the cases where the cyclists are just pootling along, minding their own business, keeping an eye on the road when somebody just turns straight across their path. Um, and that's the highway code consultation, actually, 
one of the points, not just the hierarchy of road users, is that it's um, they're looking to provide guidance on cyclist priority at junctions um, to advise drivers to give priority to cyclists at junctions and when those cyclists are travelling straight ahead, as in trying to stop exactly what you've just described here, which is the, the left turn across the, the cycle path. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, of course, um, it's only the difficult cases that end up in court and it's only the difficult cases that then one party or the other has a vested interest in reporting. So you're absolutely right. I mean, don't for one moment think that the cases we're talking about are common. 90% of the time, unfortunately, what you have is a bike doing its level best and somebody just turns straight across their path without seeing them and the cyclist comes off worse. But of course, those are ones in which liability is admitted very quickly and um, they don't make for very good podcasts. <laughs> but um, um, you know, that, that is nonetheless the overwhelming uh, majority uh, of cases. That's absolutely true. But I mean, sort of one of the things that... Um, um, that uh, is is worth sort of considering, or when when you're sort of evaluating uh, where where your case may sit, um, is the concept of causative potency. So um, that really comes into apportioning blame um, uh, on the lines of what's sort of just and equitable. Um, so the distinction can be drawn between causation and responsibility. So fault has to have a contributory cause. Um, you know, if, 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 the, if the person, the vehicle, hasn't done something wrong, then there's not going to be a finding of contributory negligence. And as we said at the, the, case, the very first case about the car being on the centre lines, it hadn't done anything wrong. And therefore, however much you might be inclined to think it's 50-50, there is no liability. So you've got to have that contributory cause. You've got to have that wrongdoing. Um, but once you've got that, you can then look at whether the other party um, has also had some causal contribution. And then you get into the realms of contributory negligence. Um, but at the same time as, as looking at that causal connection, you also have to look at responsibility or blameworthiness. And that must be considered at the same time when you're making your evaluation of apportionment um, of who bears what responsibility for uh, liability. Um, and, and essentially uh, making sure that that apportionment is just and equitable. Um, so we can go right back to, uh, as you said, was Lord Justice Denning, who said quite a lot of things in the common law that we still stand by. Um, but um, back in 1949, in Davis and Swan Motor, uh, he pretty much nailed it by saying, uh, well, causation is the decisive factor in determining whether there should be a reduced amount payable to the plaintiff now claimant nevertheless the amount of reduction does not depend solely on the degree of causation the amount of the reduction is such an amount as may be found by the court to be just and equitable having regard to the claimant's share in the responsibility for the damage this involves a consideration not only of the causative potency of a particular factor but also in its blameworthiness so um, i mean that was um, one of the things that they considered in fitzgerald and lane wasn't it yeah, I think I think the points are quite uh, well illustrated in the um, the case of Eagle and Chambers. Um, in that one, the claimant was seriously injured when she was struck by a car driven by the defendant. Uh, she was walking rather erratically and uh, in a drunken and emotional state the wrong way along the central reservation and outside the lane of a dual carriageway and the outside lane of a dual carriageway. The defendant 
who'd also been drinking, um, but apparently was driving, drove straight into her. Um, the trial judge in that one gave the cl- judgment for the claimant, however, subject to 60% contributing negligence. So whilst he started with the finding that um, the defendant was wholly to blame, um, obviously because judgment for the claimant, he then found 60% con neg, taking into account the fact she was walking, uh, erratically drunken. I don't think an emotional state was necessarily the point, but um, wrong way along central reservation at night of a drill carriageway. Take on all those things into consideration. Um, the uh, liability split flipped against her um, and she was found to be 60% to blame. And uh, in the Court of Appeal, Lady Justice Hale came out that um, there was two aspects of apportioning responsibility between the parties, the respective causative potency of their actions and their respective blameworthiness. Um, She also recognised that uh, concerns uh, with the responsibility for the damage, not responsibility for the accident. Um, And that's an important thing to consider. Um, It is why a passenger who is in no way to blame for the accident uh, in a car will still share some responsibility for the damage that they've caused if they haven't actually worn a seatbelt. It's just um, important to note on that in that case, in addition, Lady Hale actually adjusted the liability split from 60% contributing negligence to 40%. Of course. I mean, that's a very good example of that uh, balance between responsibility and uh, um, causation. Um, but taking that Egan Chambers point in a more sort of modern and vulnerable road user way, uh, the case of Malassai and Atmed, uh, which was a 2011 um, case, uh, there we had a very naughty cyclist. The cyclist ran a red light at night, had the head down and was wearing dark clothing. So um, they had um, uh, committed you know, quite a raft of uh, misdemeanours um, and, and, and failed to break. Um, unfortunately, they were struck and very seriously injured by a taxi driver who was um, speeding through a green light. I think might actually have been turning as well. But, but anyway, um, um, yeah. But anyway, was speeding through a green light, so effectively driving too fast and um, not looking out properly. And in terms of causation and causal potency, it was held that the accident wouldn't have happened uh, but for the driver's speed. So. If the taxi driver hadn't been driving so fast, whatever the cyclist had been doing, there just wouldn't have been a collision. So that was enough to get over that hurdle of, of, of causative potency. But in terms of blameworthiness and responsibility, the fault lay, as you might not be surprised to, to, to realise, pretty heavily with the cyclist with his head down, in the, with driving through a red light, cycling through a red light at some speed. So the damages, although they were awarded, were actually reduced by 80% to uh, reflect that relative blameworthiness. I think this is a topic we've quite clearly show you can go on about for quite a while. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think I think it's uh, we're going to need a part two. Um, Are you politely telling me it's time to shut up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I think we in the future uh, can do another episode because there's, well, there was a new pedestrian uh, liability split case this week um, that we can talk about another time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I suppose the, the take home points are uh, that uh, everything will turn to a greater or lesser extent on its facts. So in terms of carrying out that judgment, you have to really drill down as far as you can into what happened and then weigh up. Have you got enough to get over that hurdle of blame in the first place? And then if you have, how is the balance redressed looking at the causative potency and relative blameworthiness? of your defendant Uh, but 
More than that, we shall have to wait for another episode. (laughs) Thanks very much, Caroline. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Emily. Bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com.